And one way you can be very generous in your interactions is, especially when you have major, major cultural differences, is you know you don't force them into your culture. You try and figure out theirs, and and when they're saying something, you kind of learn their language and and um, and you kind of adapt around that. In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to Scaling for Good. We have built a company over the last eight years that now serves tens of millions of customers, and that means tens of millions of units traveling all over the world to get into those customers' hands. And even before that, you have to find out how to manufacture those products. It's a lot of problems existing in the physical world. And the person at our company who's been responsible for solving those problems has been my next guest, Lee Graves, who's our chief manufacturing officer. So Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. So the the theme of today's episode, I really want to talk about how you have thought about the challenges that come with operations. And, uh, you know, I think in the last few years, maybe America has been a country where like, we don't think a lot about the challenges of the physical world because we've kind of outsourced a bunch of that. And COVID has brought it back and made it very real that like the physical world matters a ton and there's some real limitations. You've been a part of scaling the company that the podcast is about how do you scale things. So I'd love to hear some of your perspective on how we've scaled the company. Let's start here. We weren't making anything and we needed to very quickly be able to scale up into making millions of bottles and tumblers. How did we do it? What were the big challenges we faced along the way? I think the one of the biggest challenges is finding the right partner. Yeah. Um, I think we had to find someone who could grow with us. Um, who would give us the attention that we needed. Uh, That would be in three primary areas. One would be in the manufacturing side, one would be in the shipping side, and one would be just in the fulfillment warehousing side. And when you're you're nobody, when you're a little group um, that hasn't really sold much, you don't really get the attention of, uh, you you have the risk of not getting the attention of someone that... um, it's like a big player. And so how do you get someone's attention and how do you, how do you even find the right people that will, will, um, catch the vision for what you're trying to do. And we didn't even know what we didn't know at that point. Like, this is how green we were. Like (laughs) we were just so blissfully ignorant that we, we just didn't even understand all of the complexity that we didn't know the first thing about. So I guess that's one question that I, I get asked is, if you, if you don't even know what you don't know, how do you pick a partner? Like, how do you go about finding somebody who can help you to grow and can help teach you the things that you need to learn? You nailed part of it by just saying, you know, you gotta have someone who will teach you. I mean, mm. that's a part of it. Um, and you, you have to have the humility to go and, and say, I don't know what I want. I conceptually know what I want. Um, can you help me get here? Um, and so someone who is invested in, in, in teaching, um, I think can help a lot with that. Yeah. How much do you value track record? How, like when you're thinking about picking partners in this case, we're talking about, we had to pick a partner, uh, when it came to overseas manufacturing, or if we were going to continue to lean into the partner we'd worked with up until this point, we had to pick partners when it came to logistics and fulfillment. 
what were the most important characteristics? You mentioned one, which is that they could teach you and that we could kind of learn from them. What were the other most important characteristics you looked for? You know, you can start uh, one one major area, I think, of course, is is do they make a good product? I think yeah. we've, we've talked about that some, but, um, you know, their track record, you can, and you can see this uh, with a manufacturer. So focus on the manufacturer in particular. Do they make a good product? Um, and you can see that by looking at who else they've sold to and, and then the, in the reviews of that product, or even you can even buy it, or you can ask for samples and you can, you can see it, but product quality is really important. And then through discussions with them, their commitment to product quality. How um, do you, like, what would be an example of how you saw a commitment to product quality from say our primary manufacturer early on? It really is a good question about what what we saw. I, I think that we knew that they uh, early on this particular factory sold to uh, a very um, well known competitor, mm-hmm. um, and they had had sold a lot with that competitor, and that competitor was known for their quality. And so we we had a a, a kind of an imputed understanding of what they can and could do. Um, one of the stories I remember, like mm-hmm. we, you and I, I think traveled, we're together on this trip to China, but we, we were at the factory and they're showing us stuff and they had like a pile of things that were the kind of not good enough defective pile. Right. And they're showing us things that had been pulled out of the line because the powder coating wasn't right in their opinion. And mm-hmm. some of these imperfections were really small. Like I'm like, I'm no powder coating expert, but I'm like, I'm not probably pulling that out as a defective unit. But to me, it was pretty eye opening where it's like, okay, if they're taking it that seriously, where Mm -hmm. that unit doesn't pass their bar. So in some ways, I I think it was really instructive understanding how high somebody's bar is. You can kind of learn that by looking at the things that don't meet their standard. Well, and, and the question of, you know, when you're, when you're just getting started, you really are in the dark. So you got to, but when you start traveling, it's more of an iterative thing. So you go there and you see small things. You see the example that you're talking about. You can suggest things like, Hey, you're, you're not matching quite well enough on your color. Yeah. And, and which I, is a thing with powder coat. It Sometimes was, it can be different. It colors. has some variation that happens in, in, in one of our early programs, you know, we had all the colors, right, on this, this custom program. The colors mattered so much. Um, and they would send us samples, and we'd reject some, and we'd accept some. And so we we had a process internally, um, and they kept coming back for more, right? So we knew that they were committed to that. But then later on through our travels, we suggested some standardization around uh, these these cards that were powder-coated. These are the official perfect color of that color. And then they would use that to match against. But we really iterated into that. So it wasn't initially you couldn't see that, but they they worked with, with our team to try and develop um, strategies for, for what mattered to us. So that we would have like a shared sense of what our bar of quality was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's it's easy to just assume that what you think is high quality is what somebody else will think is high quality. That's Even sure. you and I have had this discussion before, like, uh, okay, we manufactured this unit and a couple people at the, the manufacturing facility think this is fine and a couple people don't think it's up to quality. Right. What do you think? And I'm like, I think it looks okay. And you're like, well, I don't think it's acceptable, you know? <laughs> and so even like two, you know, the two of us can sometimes have different qualitative opinions. Yeah. It really is, uh, 
kind of a collaborative process and aligning process. And you have to iterate. And so review data, you utilize yeah. that. I mean, this, this is one of the things that we had to go back to because at some point. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you or I think as much as it matters what does the customer think, right? Right, right. yeah. If exactly. the customer is not happy, then like that's not a very good. That's product. actually what matters. Right. And at the same time, this is kind of an interesting thing about making things. I, I remember this that at, at early on we were working with a couple of different manufacturers for different vessels, mm -hmm. and our primary manufacturer had this kind of low view of the other manufacturer that we worked yeah. with and kind of and always talk to them about why. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they would be like, oh, their you know, their product isn't very high quality, you know, whatever. And we were like, well, that's really ironic because it actually reviews higher than yours. And, you know, from their perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, they were using inferior, you know, it was inferior in some way. I can't remember all of the reasons. I, I, yeah, it had something to do with there was some lid technology that they just weren't utilizing that they were doing and the, right. it, it was it was real kind of like if you're a, a uh, have deep knowledge of manufacturing you are a drinkware nerd yeah you're an aficionado of making <laughs> right. steel things and the, it's stuff customers would never notice exactly because right? that was the thing that like customers the seams remember the seam oh thing? yeah like yeah. it was a massive thing where there's two different ways to make these bottles and some have a seam and some don't it was like oh the ones with a seam are terrible and yeah it's like we literally didn't we've, know. I don't think we've ever even heard a customer mention the seam. <laughs> Until now that we've. Yeah, we've, well, we've planted it. It's like Inception. <laughs> we planted it in people's minds. Now now everybody's going to be unhappy about this uh, their bottle if it has a seam. But, it, but that idea is really interesting that you can get too close to things. Mm -hmm. Or when, you know, you're intimately involved in making things, you can start to get kind of picadillos that are yours, but they're not the customers. Mm -hmm. And the customers who you're serving. I mean, right. ultimately what they want and what they're voting for, that's what matters. Right. And there were a lot of different ways we found that we could add cost to the process, but the customer didn't see that result. And then, yeah. you know, shockingly, and we would have the opposite debates was about true it, right? also. Yeah. Sometimes it was like, oh, this costs three additional cents. You know, we're like, we, we see something interesting somebody else is doing and we go to our manufacturer and say, you know, hey, why aren't we doing this? This is this is very cool. We think this is a huge value add for this other company. And the manufacturer would be like, oh, well, we didn't think you wanted to. That adds three cents. Yeah, it's and it's expensive. like, we don't care about three cents. You yeah. know, like this is <laughs> this is an important feature. So sometimes it really was trying to understand what mattered to the customer and making sure that was getting pulled through in the yeah. products that we made. Yeah, 100%. So as we started to grow with this manufacturer, our strategy was we're going to do a lot of different colors, a lot of different variations. Yep. And we were really fortunate because this this partner was really bought into the idea that growing on Amazon, that was going to be crucial for their right. business. And, and the they way were, that we were going to do it, that, 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 that the colors and the variations options was yes. key to that strategy. And Even though it was it. painful. That was extremely painful. And that's one of the more interesting things about the early days uh, was that how how m much of a step that was yeah. uh, and and we pushed them and and when we saw again I was talking about iteration but we saw that they had a willingness to lean in with us we knew that that was a good partner for us absolutely and you know there was a key point there uh, I think it was probably the spring of 2017 mm -hmm. where we leaned in I think we sent them a thousand new SKUs or something. <laughs> you know, the POs, I remember when we submitted those POs, we were still doing POs, purchase orders in Excel, and we did them all on my computer at home. It was literally like 40 different Excel workbooks. It took me hours just mm -hmm. to, get, you know, to get all of these uh, spreadsheets put together, and we sent them all off. 
and we just overwhelmed them with new products because we were like, this is the strategy. And we had a little bit of money from our first big sale with Sam's. And we were like, we're just going to go guns blazing with new products on Amazon and completely swamp them. You know, initially they were like, this is great. Send them, you know, we'll be able to have this stuff in 30 days. And then it was, okay, maybe not 30 days. It kept getting pushed back. 60 days. And then, you know, when it got to be like, we think 75 days, we think 90 days, we think 100 days. You and I had a really challenging period. We did, yeah. Because I was very antsy. Mm -hmm. And your, your message was, we need to be patient and we need to stay the course. Whereas I was probably ready to hit eject sure. at that point. And ultimately we did stay the course. Why were you confident that staying the course with that partnership was the right decision at that point? Well, at that point I'd probably been to visit them, you know, five or six times, I think by the time we were doing that. And I, I had a pretty good gauge for what their capabilities were, where their pain points were. And I knew um, cause it's a lot of this had to do with, um, the infrequency or, or, or the volatility of what we were doing. We do yeah. nothing and then we do a lot. And then when we do a lot, it's really complicated. And, and just knowing how their factory was kind of positioned or, or, or designed that it just, that just takes time to pull that through. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was confident that they were committed to us. And, and oftentimes when, when you have someone who isn't performing at the level you want them to, it's either they're not committed to you or they have a real problem and, and you really have to ascertain. Or they have an inability to get An there. inability. Yeah. A real problem. asking them to get somewhere right. that they're just not capable of getting. Right? Exactly. And so, you know, you have well-meaning people who, who want to do it, but can't do it. And so what do you do in a relational, if you're going to be relational or transactional, um, and, and you do believe that they want to, um, then you spend the time to, to figure out how and, and, and why they're not able to. Yeah. And, and that's where, where we spend a lot of time leaning into it. And, and we realized at that point, I think things that came out of that were we tried to smooth out our ordering some when we've gotten very smooth. I think that's where that train station, uh, where we, yeah. you and I started talking about it as a train station where it just shows up consistently yeah. and it's relatively even, which was hard at that point because we didn't know what we needed to buy. And then the other aspect we developed with them was, um, you know, they didn't always have steel bottles ready. And so we started talking to them about, Hey, can you keep some certain stock of steel and then it's already just do made. the colors? The seal's already made, but That's you've right. got to colorize it. So, so we helped, we worked with them to develop some strategies that could then, you know, we couldn't fix our volatility necessarily, but could we, give them a certain level of commitment um, in in areas that we could commit to. Because it's like, well, we think we're going to maybe sell this many of this shape bottle. We think we're going to sell this many of this lid. Go ahead. If you would make some for us, that'd be really nice. And maybe hold on to them. We'll buy them, we promise. And it took a lot of trust on their end. But but what ended up happening with that was, man, we got we got a lot smoother out, out, out of that. Absolutely. And we just outkicked the the coverage and the ability. Yeah, we totally broke their system. Mm-hmm. Although one of the things that you and I have learned, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, you're a planner. You're more of a planner than I am. Yeah. I'm kind of like charge ahead. I'm a pioneer. And one of the things that I think surprised you is no matter how much we've tried to plan, 
the number one way that we've been able to help a manufacturing partner get to the next level is actually by breaking their processes. Yeah, I think I grew a lot in that because, you know, in some ways you're dealing with a relationship all the time. You kind of want to, they're your people. You want to yeah. protect them. You don't want to overwhelm them. You don't want to overwhelm. They're stressed. I'm stressed. But, but really, I think that's an area where I've learned a lot is like, it's, it's kind of a strategic breaking of things. And I mm-hmm. think, I think there's a lot of value in that. And, and, um, you have to break it in a way that doesn't break you. You have to do things that, that, you know, will break, but still kind of go ahead and break. But how do we do that in a way where when that failure happens, it doesn't blow up their business. It doesn't blow up our business. You know, and we can treat them with end. a ton of grace and, and, and how we react in that is super important as well. Cause it's like, you know, cause in, in a shame culture, um, which is, it's, it's so where, you said shame culture, just unpack we, that. Yeah. What is, what is a shame culture? Gosh. Uh, how do you explain it? Uh, in, in a shame culture, uh, which a lot of kind of, uh, Asian cultures are this way. Um, you don't want to look like you, you publicly, you don't ever kind of want to admit fault. You publicly don't want to ever look bad. Um, it would be, uh, you know, publicly messing up is very shameful. And, and that's kind of the, the worst thing that can happen to someone and their value hierarchy, public humiliation is the worst thing that can happen to you. And so the way that you manage that is you either, you just don't address things publicly ever. So if there's a mess up, it's like, I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some of that. Um, and, and, or sometimes you won't kind of, um, you, you won't admit fault or you won't even, even fault could be as, as small as like, I don't think I can actually do that thing. Mike, if you ask me to do something and I know it's impossible, I'm gonna be like, yep, you got it. Because it would be shameful for me to, to, to say, no, you're wrong. Or you'll say a lesser version of no. You'll just say, that's really hard. That's really hard. Yeah. That's really hard, Mike. (laughs) I'd really rather not because that's really hard. Uh And if you are Eastern, there are some cues. There's kind of a verbal dance and cues that I think you pick up on where Mm -hmm. you realize that person is saving face by saying it that way. As Westerners, where we're so direct, we can just miss it. You yeah, know, we like, can just be, well, how is it hard? Let me help you solve it. Yeah. And I know it's hard, but still do it. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're not hearing me. It's hard. You know, like I cannot wink, wink. do this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it took us a long time to pick up on, I mean, a lot of it is just getting outside of seeing the world from a first person point of view and being able to put yourself in the shoes of other people. Yeah, right. 100%. And that, that's a way we, we leaned in to be generous um, generosity being kind of core to us, you can think about it as how you interact with people. Mm. And one way you can be very generous in your interactions is, especially when you have major, major cultural differences is, you know, you don't force them into your culture. You yeah. try and figure out theirs. And, and when they're saying something, you kind of learn their language and, and, um, and you kind of adapt around that. Yeah. It's not this, Hey, America, number one, we're the buyer, so everything is on our terms and in mm-hmm. our culture. But instead, and and it's not, hey, everything is on their terms either. It's more of a, how do I learn about your culture so that I can show deference and respect to it, mm-hmm. and also understand some of the times when we're missing each other. Like this is not, like you said, this is not that you don't want to be a good partner. You just see the world radically different than the way that I naturally see the world because of upbringing and, you know, norms and all that other stuff. Yeah. And we've done some funny things around 
I mean, once you get comfortable with someone and they come, they trust you and you trust them. And, and we joke about these things. I'm, oh, yeah. You know, when it's like, oh, that's really hard. Yeah. What's that, what's that really mean? How you know, hard? How hard? Yeah. And we actually had an interesting conversation about that on our last trip where it was just like, okay, let's not, let's not do this anymore. On a scale of one to 10, how impossible is this? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, we're, we're just going to give it a gradient and, and we're creating a new language that's, that's outside of both of our kind of norms, norms, you know, Americans would be like, we can't do that. It's really hard. And we get it, you know, for them, they might say that's, that's hard. And that, that can mean a variety of range of mm. things. And so, you know, we tried to create some common language with a lot of stuff there. Today's episode is brought to you by Encore Fulfillment. Years ago, when we were getting our first water bottles in, we needed to find a partner to help us to fulfill them to customers. We knew nothing about the fulfillment process. We were all new to running a D2C website where we handled the fulfillment. And we were looking for somebody to help us do it with professionalism and give customers a great experience. That's when we met Encore Fulfillment. Based out of Oklahoma City, Encore has been a key partner as we have grown the brand from selling just a few units a week to now hundreds of thousands of units weekly. They've handled fulfillment needs, not just for our website, but can also do mass PO fulfillment and other important logistical things that we need as we grow. I've really enjoyed working with the leadership of Encore and the way that they have built their business around us as a true partner. I know that they would be a great solution for your growing e-commerce business as well. That's why it's easy to advocate for Encore Fulfillment, today's sponsor. This is a really interesting point that, you know, you, you hear people talk about the language barrier, but the language barrier is is really more than just you have different sounds you make to say the same thing. Right. Like sometimes there's literally not a word in our language for the word you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's these cultural meanings behind your words that even if I can translate the words perfectly, that. That's not going to help me to understand. I think understand. that's the bigger barrier. And that's yeah. where I think us coming up with a shared language, especially when dealing with international partners, has been such a big deal. It, when when you stack language on top of culture, it's like, well, you can't just figure out English or figure out Mandarin or whatever, Chinese. You actually have to kind of create a new shared language right. that can capture all that, can capture all the cultural differences and the language differences so that when you say something, they hear what you're thinking. Right. And there's a there's only way one way you can do that. And this is, I think, key to, to the success that we have is, is it takes time. Yeah. You and have, you've put you, in the time. You've been to China how many times? 20 Two or twenty-three. I don't remember. Yeah. It's it it's a lot, and that was in a very short amount of time. Um, but but the time it, it it is time in trips, but even time in years too. And we can we can unpack uh, those trips if you want in a minute. But the but for sure in the the time with the same group matters too. So part of um, you know when you were talking about the early period when it was like, man, it's tough. Do we stick with these guys? Are they going to be able to keep up? Um, you know. In my head, there was a lot of like, well, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to have to, we'd, have, we'd just it, be starting over. It would be starting new. over again. And, and and maybe that's the right call. And, and those are tough decisions to make. But for sure, the time, the years with the same people, you can develop common language. So you can get this thing. We don't, it's not as much of a problem. At least for me, it's not as much of me and their, their principal sales uh, person. We can pretty much, you know, um, 
talk very easily with each other. I think as you bring in new people, you have to start training that. So that that's their, their new people and our new people. And we got to, you know, create this new language and help everybody understand. Yeah, yeah. But, but the time component and the commitment, um, just makes for a stronger relationship. And another example of this is not only are you spending time, but you're willing to kind of assimilate to some extent to their culture. And Mm -hmm. like one of the examples for you, I know is like you had a yes policy when it came to food. (laughs) So, okay. So what were some of the craziest things that you ate while you were over in China? So the food, you know, you don't, first of all, the food's very different than throughout the country. It has a lot of variability so different parts of the world they want more fish and different parts they want you know more um you know pork and things like that um and it's nothing like food when you go to the local chinese food or payway or something like that and so that's, there's that's, not a payway on every there's corner n- there's not China. a payway there's not a payway and it's not you know there's not a lot of rice and a lot of not a lot of noodles but there is a fair amount of um vegetables and those are usually pretty safe but they're a, that's about as safe as you get it's about as safe there. as you get and and but they're different they're very different and they're always you know cooked in something that's you know different um the meat can get strange um yeah i want to hear about the diciest things you put in your mouth <laughs> in regards to chinese food <laughs> what are the craziest pieces of chinese food that you've put in your mouth uh the the probably the the weirdest stuff uh, there was there was a time I had uh, a fried bug it was like a locust um, and that was it, it was not as bad as I thought it would be it was it's kind of like eating a shrimp with the with the exoskeleton on it um, it's crunchy <laughs> I'm hearing it, crunchy it, yeah it's very crunchy and it kind of had that same texture and. Luckily, it was super spicy and, and the flavor wasn't horrible. If you can just get behind that, you're eating a bug. It was not horrible, but I'm not doing it again. Uh, have you had stinky tofu? I have had stinky tofu. Man, stinky tofu is, you can only, in, unless you go to China, that's the only thing. You, you, I just want to tell everybody listening to this. I've never, I, I have never, I will never try stinky tofu. As it's much the as smelliest thing it, that's ever. It smells. It's awful. Like death. If you could say, what does death smell like? I would right. say it smells like stinky tofu. Right. And they serve this stuff in uh, all over the it's place. It's like street food. You it see is. it a lot when it's you're out, like, out on the street. It's streets. like street food. And you just, it, it was, it was honestly one of those moments where I felt the most alien in China <laughs> because it, it, there, at no point could I understand why any other human would want to put that in their mouth. No. Something that smelled it's, like that. It's awful. There's the thousand-year-old egg, which I still don't know what it is, but it's an egg that's. I mean, just it's not a thousand name, years old. Exactly. The name worries you. That's right. I when don't think it's technically a thousand years any old. Any food where they start with this is a thousand years old. That's right. You, you, yep. That's a red flag. There's that yeah. for me. Any anything having to do with shrimp or fish that's interesting. Uh-huh. There's there's the you know kind of weird uh, gelatiny things that might have a worm or something inside that that that's not fun. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, the, the live shrimp probably is the, the coup de gras for me that mm. it, it was, it was the, um, it was, it was a shrimp that was soaked in rice wine and, and it was still moving when I, this is, this is uh there was an old woman who swallowed a fly situation, isn't it? Do you <laughs> yeah. have oh, yeah. to then eat something else that eats the shrimp so that uh, I, anyway, I don't uh, want to yeah. know. I, I don't know. I, I can say that I had genuine concerns about, um, I, I've never gotten 
a stomach illness there. So I, but I was concerned. Amazing. Yeah. You you are beating the odds, Lee. Uh, so a couple of other that. questions that I have for you. One is we have a unique mission statement, obviously yeah. with the company, and we want that to be reflected in the way we do everything, even how we interact with international manufacturers. My question is, how has our mission statement, we exist to give generously impacted the way that you have worked with international manufacturing partners giving generously you know people typically think about it as money mm -hmm. and we have a broader sense you've probably talked about it maybe on the other podcast but but one way you can give is is your time and your in and your uh, your commitment to these people um so you know time and information probably knowledge knowledge yeah we yeah. you know one of the things i i that's worth saying um is the relationship we ended up being kind of a two-way street and we shared a lot of online strategy with them um mm -hmm. I, I remember lots of lots of trips where you'd be unpacking kind of deep strategy that which was for, risky in retrospect was, because then everybody you know <laughs> other other brands are telling us oh yeah your factory is going to use that they're going to sell against you they're uh -huh. going to try and steal your customers there was even a point where our primary manufacturer started selling on amazon and doing some things kind of similar to us and we had to say hey this is not cool right. you know we are right. not okay with this and right. and to their credit they said okay we get it and sure. they stopped yeah and other things other ways you know when i would go um that i was able to to do it um, you know, I have a background in, in engineering and in, in factories and, and things of that nature. So I'm very comfortable in kind of that environment. And, um, you know, I would spend a lot of time identifying things and saying, Hey, have you thought about doing this, this way or that way? And it was interesting because I'm just a curious person. So I ask questions and, and I probably give unsolicited advice, but they, they started actually asking me more and more questions. And so, and, um, it was a way that I could could help. Um, it could even be with um, safety things that I saw with the workers when we were there. I, I, I remember um, this loud room uh, in one of my early trips, and there's people are in there. It's, it's unbelievably loud. I think they were grinding on things, and it was just just imagine how loud that would be. Um, nobody had a hearing protection, mm. and I was like, "Hey guys, this is this is really not okay." And and I was kind of emphatic about it. And the next time I came, like two months later, I'm there. Mm. Everybody's got it on. And, and I've never seen them without hearing protection since. I, I love that story because, like you said, you hear generosity and you think giving money away. But being a, a self-aware enough and aware of other people enough that you're like, hey, those people are going to have hearing damage if you don't protect them. Mm -hmm. Like there's probably people walking around China that are going to have hearing mm -hmm. for much longer in their life as a result of you saying something. Well, that's a form of generosity, mm -hmm. but it, it's not the traditional way that people tend to think about it. It's a right. much bigger kind of like a capital G form of generosity. Right. And and I spend a lot of time with with the main sales uh, guy that, that's at the primary factory, and just so much time with him where I'm talking to him about team leadership, yeah. helping because he was very young when he started. He we you know we were like his first client. You know, yeah, this is another crazy thing about the story. Yeah. Our partner that we had found, we found him through Alibaba which it's not like we had gone through some like really complex vetting process because again, we didn't know what we didn't know when right. we started. And the sales rep that made the first sale to us, his name's Rain, 
he had never made a sale. So somehow the first time he throws, you know, kind of he casts his reel out there, he ends up hooking what ends up being one of the biggest, you know, companies in the space. It's Mm -hmm. just an unbelievable story. But like you said, he had to grow a lot very quickly. Well, there's an even great story. I want to, I want to give a Brian story because one of the more impactful things for him Mm -hmm. and ultimately for us was, uh, I don't, this was even before I was involved. So this was very early. You guys had probably done like, this might be your second PO or something. And, um, they had a sales competition and, uh, rain was talking to Brian then and he reached out and he said something to Brian about like, Hey, if I could get this PO that, you know, I've been talking about by this date and pull it forward or something. And, you know, I might be able to win my sales competition. And, as rain tells me the story, I, I, Brian probably would never, uh, he's, he, he's, uh, too humble to, yeah, he to wouldn't even, own it. He, probably. he wouldn't own it, but rain basically, um, uh, talks, holds Brian at such his steam because of this. And, and he talked you and Micah to, into, uh, going ahead and putting that PO in and rain won the competition and rain. What, what he took from that was, I know I can trust these guys. Hmm. And, I want, I think these guys are going to do something big. There were a lot of hints. And then he started being a massive advocate for us within the company, which he got the attention of the owner. And, and he started saying, you got to listen to these guys They're They really get it. And that one event of generosity, which, you know, I don't even know how we'd view it as if we even thought we were being generous. It was like, yeah, sure. We'll pull that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, was so impactful that, that it, built so much trust that it kind of propelled us into this really great future with, with that company. It's interesting. One of the themes that has definitely come up in other episodes is when you think about sales, you almost always tend to think about externally selling things, but to be really effective in any company, you're actually selling externally and internally. Mm -hmm. And the same was true. Like you're saying for our, our main sales rep, he wasn't just trying to sell to us. He was selling us to his, Mm -hmm. uh, to his peers and to the owner of that factory. And, And that led to all kinds of different things, whether it was financing or different ways that they leaned in, which helped propel us to Mm -hmm. success. So Lee, get you out of here on this. Uh, We've had a lot of memories over the last seven or eight years. What are one or two memories that really stand out to you as some of your very favorite Simple Modern memories? Most of my memories probably are, there's a lot of them around travel uh, and or uh, working through something difficult. Um, And so, you know, some of the worst times are some of the best memories. There was a a night where we pulled an all-nighter and I you know, a bunch of us stayed up all night and I sat with you in the office and we rebuilt the Amazon listings. That's a fond memory, even though it was, it was a really stressful, horrible night, but in, that was, that was a really great, um, you know, memory for me. I think early trips, uh, to China, um, we're going with, um, we're kind of lost there. You show up to China, it's this strange place yeah. and we're going and, and we have this new company, this new thing that we're trying to do. So there's so much excitement and we're in this place and we're really just trying to figure it out. Um, and, Total sense and, of and, wonder. And, I yeah, think sense of wonder trips. and exploration and um, everything was new and unique and, and a little, a little strange and kind of fun in a fun way. Um, but the time, you know, those trips provide so much time um, together that, that 
you know, you've got hours together on a plane, you know, you can develop, you know, inside jokes or you just get to, to really have deep conversations. Um, I can remember, uh, one where it was just me and Corbin coming back and, and, um, you know, he was telling me about, about to get engaged to Lane and, um, we were talking through all those things. And so he and I developed a deep bond just through that travel. So it's mostly going to be around travel and just my interactions with, with people in those trips. Yeah. Some great memories and excited to continue to make many more together and appreciate you coming on and sharing. Uh, you've done a fantastic job of trailblazing when it comes to establishing partnerships with people halfway across the world and, and really showing me the way that that can be done with excellence. So appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us. This is another episode of Scaling for Good. 